All right, we are we are down to the down to the end. We're in Romans chapter 14, 15, and 16. We're going to try to do both chapters tonight. Let me just, uh, let me pray. Father, thank you so much for our time together. We thank you for the richness of your grace, and the tenderness of your mercy, and we thank you for your great gift of your word, in particular your gift of this book, the book of Romans. Father, thank you so much for what it contains and what it teaches. Thank you for what we've learned from it. And we just pray that you would give us the grace to apply it. That we would not just be hearers only, but doers of your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Just a kind of review since we're down to the very end. You might recall that in the very first part of Romans, talks, Paul talks about the need of salvation, how we're all lost and apart from Christ. Pagans, Gentiles, Jews alike, all are guilty before the judgment seat of God. We all have a serious problem. We're lost and apart from salvation. And then he begins to talk about the way of salvation, which is, of course, justification by faith alone. And now God has accomplished what we could not do. Through sending his son, he justifies us by his grace. And we receive and embrace that salvation by faith. And then kind of the middle section of uh, Romans, it talks about the life of salvation. How we live uh, in peace with God and how we live to glorify and honor him and, and all that we do. And then in chapters 9 through 11, he talks about God's sovereignty and salvation. How uh, God calls us to himself by his own sovereign grace. And then remember in chapter 12, there's that important word, therefore. And that's the, that's the big transition. You know, the Romans really has two major sections. Chapters 1 through 11 are the doctrinal or theological section. Chapters 12 through 16 are the practical uh, section where we apply the truth of what he's taught. And um, so... Uh, and we, we began looking at the practical side in chapter 12, and now we're already down to chapter 15, which is really a continuation of what uh, we saw in chapter 14. Now, last week, what was, what was our, it's always risky to ask people about what you taught a week ago. Might hurt my pride a little bit here. What was chapter 14 about? Christian liberty, that's right. How, how do we deal with all the differences there are among us in the church, in the body of Christ? Not on matters of principle, but on matters of practice. Not on matters that matter, but matters that don't really matter. What we call things that are morally neutral. We call it the adiaphora, things indifferent the things that really don't matter, and we have a choice whether we can participate, yay or nay. Y'all come right on in. You need a Bible? Okay. <laughs> I got, I got one, le one real Bible left. And, uh, you know, how do we deal with, with all that? And of course, uh, the issues that we talked about last week that kind of, 
plague the church or affect the body of Christ today or is use of alcohol. Can you drink or can you not drink? Are you free to do that or are you free not to do that? There are other issues, going to movies, playing cards, dancing. You know, some Christians feel the freedom to do those kinds of things. Other people don't feel the freedom to do those kinds of things. Some people have the liberty, they think, to participate. Others do not believe they have the liberty to participate. And we saw how Paul talked about the weak and the strong last week. That's how he describes them in chapter 14. Who are the weak? Those who have the liberty or don't? Those who don't, don't sense that liberty. And the stronger those who do. Now, what Paul said was, you know, you can't let the weak tyrannize the strong or the majority. But what do you, what do you, what do you hammer over and over again? What was, what was Paul's, it seemed like his passion in chapter 14. What was his caution? That's right. His caution was not to the weak. His caution's to the strong. And said, you be very, very, very careful in the exercise of your Christian liberty that you don't cause the weaker brother to stumble. That means that the liberty of the strong is limited. At times it's limited by the frailty of the weak. Because God forbid that in the exercise of what we consider to be our Christian liberty, we cause a brother or sister to stumble. And that's where he picks up in chapter 15 with the same, with the same theme. You know, the church is all about relationships. You know, I, just, I appreciate Carrie so much for a lot of things. One of the things Carrie's taught me is... Uh, I never had referred to the church as the body until I got here. I didn't use that term. Carrie uses it all the time, talking about the body. And, and that's what we are. We are, a, we are a body. We are relational. We are connectional. And, and we're not just independent doing our own thing, but we, we do things together. And, and I have to consider how my behavior impacts someone else. And you have to consider how your behavior impacts another person. Now, verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 1. And we're going to walk our way through it again. Is that okay? Just kind of walk our way through. It says, now we, are, we who are strong ought to bear the weakness of those without strength. That is, those who are strong ought to consider those who are weak. And he says, not what? Not just please ourselves. Now, what is our human nature? Please ourselves. That's exactly right. But Paul says we need to be very careful in the church that we bear the weakness of the weak. We be sensitive to the weakness of the, to the weakness of the weak. And that we don't just live to please ourselves. Instead, he says, verse 2. Each of us is to please who? His neighbor. I'm to consider your needs more important than my own. 
I'm to live for you, in a sense, more than I live for myself. Each of us is to please his neighbor. Notice what he says, for his good, that is, for your neighbor's good, to his edification, all right? We're always to be considerate of the other person, in particular here, the person who is weak. We don't just do what we want to do. We, we don't do just what we have, think we have the freedom to do. We have to be very careful about how our freedom impacts someone else. And look at verse 3. What example he uses. Who does he use as an example in verse 3? Christ. For Christ did not even please himself. Notice he uses the word please three times. Verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3. We're not just to please ourselves, we're to please our neighbor. For even Christ, he says, did not please himself. In fact, he was willing to suffer reproach. For who? Yeah, for us, for the, for the neighbor, for, the, for, the, for someone else. That's exactly right. <coughs> And he quotes from Psalm 69, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. Christ was willing to suffer reproach for his people. You know, uh, someone has said that the good principle to live the, by which to live the Christian life is the joy principle. Jesus first, others second. And yourself third. That's a key ingredient to living within the body of Christ. Now, let's just be, while we're just being honest, let's be honest. Sometimes this is hard. Sometimes that's especially hard. Especially when this is the strong and this is the weak and the strong are supposed to yield to the weak so they don't stumble, that's hard. So how do we do it? Verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through two things, perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And I'm going to talk about hope in just a little bit. It just takes perseverance to, to live the way God wants you to live, and we gain that from the Scriptures. Verse 5, he uses the same two words and says they come from God. God gives perseverance, and God gives encouragement to live this way. So that, so that the church will continue to experience Unity. So look at the, look at the end of verse five and six. I'll just read all five. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the what? Same mind. With one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with what? One mind or one accord 
you may with what? One voice. Do what? Glorify God. Look, this whole principle here is to push us to having the same mind of one accord so that with one voice we might, what is it? Glory God, by God, we might worship. I just can't tell you how important this is in the body of Christ. This affects this. Our unity affects our worship. Over and over again, the Bible pushes us, pushes us, exhorts us to unity. What did Jesus pray in, in, in the high priestly prayer in John 17? I pray that they may all be one. And so, uh, God gives us the grace to do it even though it might be difficult to do it. And he goes on to verse 7. It draws an application. He says, therefore, do what? Accept one another. That's the same way he started chapter 14 last week. Now accept the one who is weak. We're to, we're to accept one another. Remember last week we talked about how the, the, the weak are not to judge the strong you ought not to be doing that and, and the strong ought not to be condemning the weak well what's wrong with you we're to accept one another and we're to accept one another he says in verse 7 because that's the way Christ has accepted us Hey, Christ has accepted me with all my frailties and my foibles and my weaknesses and my, uh, well, all my sin. And I'm to accept you the same way. And then he uses an illustration in verses 8 through 12. He's talking about unity here. What is the greatest disunity in the Bible? between two ethnic groups. Well, that, that, that's true. But here are Jews and Gentiles, and Samaritans were Gentiles. And notice what he says, verse 14. I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, that is to the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. And then he quotes from the Old Testament several different passages talking about how all God's people are to worship and praise God together. The Gentiles with the Jews. The Gentiles with his people, it says. That's the way God has accepted us. Verse 13. Now may the God of hope, I told you I was going to get to hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. What do we hope for? What's hope about? Do we hope for things in the past? 
They're already done. Do we hope, do we hope for things in the, in the present? It's going on now. Hope always has to do with the future. We hope. We have a great hope. And our hope is twofold. Our hope is to experience more and more of this unity as we strive together to, to, to live with one another in the body of Christ. But our greatest hope is one day, you know, heaven's going to be the most united place there is. And we have great hope for that from the promise of God. Well, now in chapter or verse 14, he shifts gears. And, and this shift goes all the way to the end of, of chapter 16, really. And um, he, he, it's, it begins the personal side, talking about his personal relationship with the Romans. And notice he says, And concerning you, my brethren, concerning you in Rome, my brethren, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and, and able to admonish one another. You can admonish one another, but he says in verse 15, but I've done it myself. But I've written very boldly to you on some points to remind you again. And it's interesting, he kind of goes off on a tangent. Now we understand that the, the, the books of the Bible written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit guided these men to, to write what he wanted them to write, but he used them in their own situations and circumstances. Paul's writing a letter. And he says, I've written very boldly to you because of the grace that was given to me. And, and, and God's grace, he says in verse 16, enabled me, uh, enabled me to be a what? A minister. A minister to who? To the Gentiles. And he says, I'm ministering as, as, a, as a priest, as it were. Not offering sacrifices to God, but offering the Gentiles to him as my sacrifice. And then, then he goes and just talks about his ministry. Let me just read and I'll just make a few comments. He says, Therefore in Christ Jesus I have reason for boasting in the things pertaining to God, for I will not presume to speak of anything ex except what Christ has accomplished through me. That's verse 18. Resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Paul had nothing to say other than what Christ had done in him and through him. Verse 19, in the power of signs and wonders and the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And I thus aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. Wow. Paul was a missionary. Paul went to places where the gospel had never been preached before. Now, most people like me, we build on the foundation of someone else. I built on, on the foundation here that my predecessor had built. Mason's going to build on the additions that I've made here. We build on the foundation of other people. Paul didn't do that. Paul says, I went to places where they had never heard of Christ. That was Paul's ministry. And, and Paul's ministry out in these areas, doing what God had led him to do, prevented him from doing one of the primary things he wanted to do. 
And that was go where? Go where? Go to Rome. Paul says, for this reason, because I've been out here ministering to the people who've never heard, for this reason I've often, verse 22, often been prevented from coming to you. But now with no further place for me in these regions, he thinks he's kind of saturated it. And since I've had many years, for many years, a longing to come to you. Goes back all the way to chapter 1. Flip back to chapter 1 with me for just a moment. Verse uh, 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. And so Paul had this desire to see them, but he hadn't been able to. But he explains to them his plan. He has a plan to get to Rome. He's going to go to Rome on his way where? To Spain. Hmm. Did Paul ever get to Spain? We don't think Paul ever got to Spain. You know, Proverbs says, the mind of man... Makes his plans, basically. But the Lord directs his steps. Look, look at what Paul wanted to do, planned to do. He said, I've had for many years a longing to come to you. Whenever I go to Spain, for hope, this is verse 24, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you. He's planning to go to Spain. He'll stop in Rome, see them, and they're going to help him get on his way. When I first enjoyed your company for a while... But now I'm going where? To Jerusalem. Now Paul's in Corinth. I can't draw a map. Paul's in Corinth. He's, he's halfway to Spain. Not halfway, but he's, he's a good third of the way to Spain. He's in Gre- Corinth's in Greece. But instead of going on to Spain from there, he's going to make the trip to Jerusalem. Then his plan is to go all the way back to Spain. Why did, we haven't read the text ahead. You might know why is he want why is he so determined to get to Jerusalem at this point in time? What's he got with him? He's got he's got gifts, offerings. The Gentiles in these places where he had ministered had raised an offering, given gifts for the Jews in poverty in Jerusalem. And he is on his way to Jerusalem with those offerings. 25, I'm on my way to, to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual blessings. They are indebted to minister to them in also material things. Look, the Gentiles understood. Salvation is of the Jews. We all have our, our spiritual roots in the Jews. And these Gentiles who had converted were concerned that they returned some of the favor. Therefore, he says, when I finish this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by, I will go on by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. That's Paul's plan. That plan never materialized. Oh, he got to Rome. He didn't go by way of, on his way to Spain, though. How did Paul go to Rome? 
in, in chain. And, and notice what he says in verse 30 and 31. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. That is, he's, he's saying, please pray for me. Strive in your prayers with me and for me. Verse 31, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. Jerusalem was in Judea. See, Paul knew there was a price on his head and a target on his back. And we got to Jerusalem. He was arrested. And eventually he asked, made an appeal to go to Rome. That's how he got to Rome. But Paul had a desire to come to them, to the people in Rome. Any questions so far? Chapter 16 has got a bunch of names in it. But it shows that Paul's ministry was relational. Look, we don't just stand up here and preach and stand here and teach. We're involved in the lives of people. What the ministry is about. Someone asked me earlier this week, what are you going to miss? What are you going to miss about the ministry? I'm going to miss the relationships. That's what Paul is doing here in chapter 16. He's naming names. He's commending people. He's sending greetings to people. I just want to pick out several things here. I've got seven minutes. You know, sometimes they skip over passages or chapters like this. But remember what Paul said to Timothy? How much scripture is inspired? All scripture is inspired. How much is profitable? All of it. All of it is profitable. So this is a profitable chapter. Who does he talk about? For who does it come in first in verse 1 of chapter 16? Phoebe. Now, Phoebe's been kind of a controversial lady. Phoebe was a worker in the church. That's why he's commending her. He's, she, has, what does he call her in verse 1? She's a servant. Ah, but the problem with verse 1 and Phoebe, I'll do it in the English. It's half English and half Greek. The word servant is the word diakoneo, from which we get what word in the church? The word deacon. And people have said, ah, see, I told you women ought to be deacons in the church. Phoebe was the first deacon. Yes. Well, the word diakoneo is used all the way, many places for servant. She was a servant of the church. And he's commending her. She was a great lady. He was a great lady. She didn't deserve to be caught of a controversy. He says in verse 2, Receive her in the Lord in the manner of worthy of the saints, and that you help her. In whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has been a helper of many and of myself as well. What a great commendation he gave to Phoebe. 
In verse 3, he talks about Prissa and Aquila. That's Priscilla and Aquila. They, he describes them there as his fellow workers in Christ. They, uh, he met them in Corinth. They went with him to Ephesus. And they, as he says here, they were his fellow workers. They risked their own necks for him. And he gives thanks for them. Then he goes through another, and also the church met in their house. He goes down through another list. Let's go all the way down to um, uh, verse 12. Trifema and Trifosa. Those are two more women. Again, they're described as workers in the Lord. He says, Great Persis, the beloved, who's worked hard in the Lord. See how he's commending these people, bragging on these people. And he says, Greet Rufus, verse 13. He's a choice man in the Lord. A little interesting note about Rufus. Keep your finger in uh, Romans 16 and turn back to Mark 15. We'll get a little, little history about Rufus. Who was it that uh, carried Jesus' cross? Simon of Cyrene. Look at verse 21 of uh, verse chapter 15. They pressed into service a passerby from the, coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Bear's cross. Verse 16. Carrie, read verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All right. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That was the custom in those days. You know, they still do it in the Middle East, don't they? They kiss on the cheek. That was the custom then. Um, there was nothing odd about it in those days. And then in verses 17 through uh, 18, he gives them an apostolic warning. And, and look at this warning in the context of what we've already been talking about tonight in, in, in the unity of the church. He says, I urge you, brethren, keep your eyes on those who do what? Cause what? Cause division or dissension and hindrances contrary to the teaching that is contrary to the word which you have learned and do what? Avoid them. Turn away from them. He's saying avoid troublemakers and keep your eye on those who would destroy the unity of the church. For such men, verse 18, are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deserve the heart, de deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. They're in it for themselves. He commends the, all the Romans in verse 19, for the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent of what is evil. And then just to show you how ignorant I am, says, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I have no idea what he's talking about there. And then starting with verse 21, he gives greetings from himself and those with him. Who's the first person he mentions with him in verse 21? Timothy. 
my fellow worker greets you. Timothy's with him. So do, he says, Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. Then he, then, you know, Paul didn't write all his letters. He had eye problems. He dictated them. It's clear in verse 22 that Tertius, Tertius is writing this letter for Paul. And, and he puts this little personal greeting in there. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. He was his emanuensis, we call it. And then he goes on. One interesting thing is, Paul rarely describes people by their occupation, but in verse 23, he uh, uh, sends greetings to Erastus, or, or not sends greetings, sends greetings from Erastus, the city treasurer in Corinth. And then he ends up with the benediction. Let me just read that and we'll be done. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. And we're through. Before we finish, I'm not, I'm not talking about the last things much. This is the this is my last time on a Wednesday night. I just want to, Paul commended the Romans, and I commend you. Thank you all for your faithfulness, for your participation, uh, for your willingness to listen and to hear. And as Paul says at the end, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word and I'm, I'm struck again tonight by the appeal in your word to unity and I pray that we would strive for it I thank you for the wonderful unity you've given us in this church it's a blessed gift and we enjoy it it's a delight and I pray that you would preserve it and I pray that you would keep us always together by having one mind one purpose, one accord, so that we might with one voice worship and glorify and praise our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you all so much.